All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, friend. This is an episode of Note to Self, but from when we used to be called New Tech City. Same good content, just the old name. Enjoy. You'll find no humble bragging here. I'm Anoush Samarodi, the host of New Tech City, and today we are owning it. The New Tech City team and I won three New York Press Club awards, and we are thrilled. So in case you're new to New Tech City or you missed these award-winning radio pieces, we have compiled them for you today. And up first is a story about a website that wants to change the way that neighbors talk to each other. It's called Nextdoor. And I wanted to figure out why it just wasn't working in my neighborhood, especially not on my neighbors like Joanne. That's me. I've been living on this block 31 years, on this block, around the corner, the rest of my life, you know? So that's all I ever did was sit on the stoop with the kids. Joe spends a lot of her time on the stoop of her apartment building, sitting in her green canvas folding chair, smoking cigarettes, and keeping tabs on our block in Brooklyn. I have absolutely no idea what Joe does for a living. We aren't Facebook friends or LinkedIn. But I do know that her daughter's home in Staten Island was flooded by Sandy and that when he was little, her son Jeffrey was very late to potty training. These are not things that I can find online. We noticed that there was no social network to help us stay in touch with the people who are literally right outside our front doors, our neighbors. Nirav Tolia is Nextdoor's CEO and helped found the site three years ago. It's basically Facebook for neighborhoods, but with more of a local and utilitarian bent. One way to think about it is, if you do have a dog and you lose the dog, what do you do? You print out a bunch of flyers and you start putting them up on telephone poles. That's very, very, very inefficient. It would be much better if you had a picture of your dog, you attached it to a message on Nextdoor, and in just a few minutes you could get the word out to everyone in the neighborhood. It's unclear how Nextdoor is going to make money. It doesn't have ads, and cities don't pay to use it. Okay, so I'm going to check Nextdoor out for myself. I am going online, and I am now officially the fourth member of the Carol Hoyt Nextdoor website, and I'm going to take the service up on its offer to send postcards, real ones, to 10 of my neighbors and invite them to sign up too. Okay, other than a couple of messages from the city about heat advisories, there's not much to see yet. So I asked Nextdoor to put me in touch with someone in another city who's really into using the service so that I can better understand what exactly is on offer. Meet Mindy Rice in Cincinnati. I have never lived anywhere else. We live in a small community here in Cincinnati called Clifton. We actually live in the house that my husband grew up in. And you're describing that, and it kind of makes me wonder why a service like Nextdoor would be of any use to you, because you probably know your neighbors pretty well. 
Well, you know, you would think so, but at first I decided to become a member so that I would get to know my neighbors better, whether we needed a referral for landscaping or we needed to borrow something or even for crime alerts or lost pets. Well, then a few months into it, we noticed that people were starting subgroups and they were creating book clubs, a cycling club, a conversation salon. So it was also helping people to physically meet up. I think people do want to connect, but everybody's just busy. Mm. And this just gave kind of an outlet for people to express a desire to get together online and see how their neighbors would respond. And fortunately, Clifton responded very well to it. Okay. Well, I got to say, my Brooklyn neighborhood does not sound like Clifton. We have Italian immigrant families, lots of public housing, all mixed in with hipsters and yuppies. At this point, I check back in on my next door website. One more person has signed up. I get an email warning me that there's only a few days left to get the 10 members needed, a minion in next door terms, to be legit. No one has responded to any of my invitations. How can I get people to join other than being weird and stalking them? Every time I would go to a stoop sale with kids stuff, you have families, you want me to sign you up. My neighbor downstairs had 40 members of her mommy group and she signed those people up and they signed their friends up. This woman knows. Susan Fox is the founder of one of the biggest online communities in Brooklyn, Park Slope Parents. Eleven years ago, she was a new mom and appalled at all the baby junk, like bouncy seats and toys, that she saw being put out with the trash. So she initially launched the site to get parents recycling. It takes a while. We have 5,000 active members, but we started very slowly. Now the site has dozens of subgroups, helps parents with career networking, gives advice on what to pay your nanny. I ask her how Nextdoor can possibly gain ground around here. People are busy. They have other resources. There's the Civic Park Slope Civic Council. There's Park Slope Parents. Is there a motivation for Bob down at 444 12th Street to say, I want to join this community? And there's some reward for people to be a part of this. You are reaching people at a very crucial moment in their lives when they are open and they need something. They've just become parents. They are vulnerable. But what strikes me with next door is there's no sort of impetus. It almost needs like another sort of disaster for people to think that they need it, God forbid. If we would have had next door during Hurricane Sandy, would it have been an easier vehicle to get all this information out? And my guess is yes. After interviewing Susan, I check, again, to see if anyone else has signed up. One more person. I keep thinking about what Nirov told me. The research shows that if you use an online mechanism to connect with your neighbors, you're 70% more likely to communicate with those neighbors in person. Meanwhile, my husband makes friends with the father of two across the street, who volunteers to help try and get our old refrigerator out the front door. Unsuccessfully, I might add. I go back to Joe, the unofficial mayor of my street. Would she sign up for next door? I probably would if I was a computer person, but I'm always outside. I'm never on the computer. Okay, last update. The pilot period on my next door website has been extended in the hopes of getting more people to sign up. I should add that it was Joe who told me about the laptop that was stolen out of the window of the restaurant down the street. And she was the one that recommended I check out the new playground at Brooklyn Bridge Park. Thanks, Joe. You're welcome. Okay, so a quick update here. 
Around 50 more people have signed up for Nextdoor in my neighborhood since this piece aired, most of them in June and July. And it's very obvious why they've signed up. There has been a new construction site that is driving us all completely bananas with this banging incessantly all day long. That is definitely one way to bring neighbors together to complain. Okay, our second award-winning episode. (laughs) I love saying that. It's called How Kids Are Like Software. So this one happened because I got kind of obsessed with understanding Agile. It's a process that software teams use to organize themselves to get projects done. But I am not a developer. And so I wondered, could the process of Agile be applied to my life? And then I found a family that was already using Agile to run their lives. Hello! When the Filer-Rottenberg clan gathers around their oval wood dining room table, they begin with a ritual to get everyone focused. Okay, who's calling it to order? Me! Thank you for coming to the family meeting. And then they talk about what the family did well last week. So I think that for Daddy's birthday, everybody participated in making him cards and giving him homemade birthday presents. And what didn't go so well. What do you mean by morning stuff? What, what about them like, do you think didn't work well? Especially the bed making and the breakfast. Okay, mornings didn't work. Okay, what else besides mornings didn't work? To some, this family get-together might sound more like a business meeting than quality time. And yep, it's got planning, deadlines, even minutes. One of them is taking notes in a fabric-covered notebook. So you're writing it down. Mornings. Read it out as you write it so, we all, so I can hear it. Mornings. Helping the... And I should mention that Bruce Feiler isn't just some dad. He's a best-selling author who basically makes a living writing about cool stuff. And then he actually goes and does it, too. So he wrote a book called Walking the Bible, where he retraced the steps of the stories in the Bible. And this time, he's been testing out the idea of parenting, sort of like an engineer creates complex software. So what we're going to do now is we're going to come up with a new morning list because one of the ways that we run our family is if it's not work, we're not going to keep doing it over and over again. We're going to change. Like that's the whole reason that we have this meeting is so that we can change if it's not working and everybody agrees it's not working. Bruce and Linda didn't come up with the strict structure of the meeting themselves. It all started about four years ago when Bruce says he and his wife felt like they didn't know what they were doing as parents. They were lost. They were out of control. We needed a system. We needed a mechanism to manage the constant change that was in our family. And in one of these conversations, I was sitting with some people uh, in Silicon Valley, and I said, tell me what's going on in your world that will help my family. And a woman said... What you need is Agile. Welcome to Agile Software Development and Introduction. Welcome to the first step on your Agile journey. The bottom line, modern software engineering is driven by the need to be Agile. I'd never heard the word. Um, I knew nothing about it. The woman who mentioned Agile was Gina Bianchini. Maybe you've heard of her. She's a well-known tech entrepreneur. And what she and those Silicon Valley techies said really resonated with Bruce. One of the things that I heard about when people design websites the way they think, and that is, if you're doing the same thing you were doing six months ago, you're doing the wrong thing. To me, that is completely transferable to the world of families. I mean, this is a very kind of abstract way of talking about families, kind of a systems way, but it is the reality that parents face. That system was codified in 2001 when a group of software engineers met at a ski lodge in Utah and they wrote something called the Agile Manifesto. 
the basic principle is constant improvement. So taking a big project and breaking it down into small, manageable, and measurable tasks. Agile is now standard practice in 200 countries. Two-thirds of the software in the world is done with this, and it is now coming into management suites. Bruce ended up writing a book based on applying some of these Silicon Valley techniques. It's called The Secrets of Happy Families. But by now, you're probably wondering how this all fits into healthcare.gov. Well, I wondered if the problems came down to not being agile, since, you know, everyone else is doing it. Mice and keyboards clicking. That's the not terribly impressive sound of dozens of engineers hard at work. And the man in charge of all of this clicking is Artem Fishman. I'm the VP of engineering at Huge, and we're about 100 technologists across uh, Huge Global. Huge is based in Dumbo, and they make some pretty complicated websites like nyc.gov. And Artem... He is very big on Agile. Yes, and and that's what we're into. And here's why. He says that the second you create a team of more than 10 engineers, things get crazy. And not good crazy. You are introducing enormous complexity and and all kinds of um, unknowns and integration points between the engineers. Uh, And that's a very dangerous proposition. So smart tech companies stick to very small teams. And instead of just executing what the boss wants, the team members actually have a say. The goal is to get the simplest version of a website out in front of the customer as soon as possible, minimum viable product, so that they can learn and go back and improve and build more, just like Bruce is trying to grow his family, bit by bit, small chunk by small chunk. That's agile. Big bureaucracies? Not so agile. Until we can kind of decouple regulation from design, which is obviously a massive challenge, we're always going to come up against this. That's Kate Watts, Artem's colleague in Washington. Her goal is to convince government agencies to inject some cool and, as the techies like to call it, usability into their websites. I think what's wrong with government is that we have a tendency to build everything, launch it, and then wait for reaction as opposed to being nimble and as opposed to looking at it like other large corporations are, like an Amazon or Google or Facebook. Kate says Agile is about not being so controlling or micromanaging your team, and you'll get better stuff out of them. Kind of like how Bruce Feiler lets his children suggest their own punishments. Bruce tells me he hopes that I took at least one thing away from his family meetings and his Agile-trained children. We were giving them the power to make their own decisions and to reward themselves and ultimately even to hang themselves if that's what it is. Again, if I try to get my kids to 15 and say, go forth and make the really hard decisions about whether to use birth control, whether to use drugs, whether to get a tattoo, the the kind of things that really matter. I mean, whether they put their shoes on or make their bed in the morning doesn't really matter. That matters. So Bruce argues if you want your kids to succeed in this world, teach them to have an opinion and micromanage themselves. So that is Agile. In a minute, the definitive history of how New York City finally became a tech center. And it's an interesting story, even if you are not a New Yorker. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and this is New Tech City's New York Press Club Awards show. And no matter where you live, you know who Michael Bloomberg is. 
big time media mogul, New York's mayor until pretty recently. But is Michael Bloomberg really the reason why New York City became the number two tech city in the country? And a lot of people don't believe me when I tell them that it is. I wanted to investigate and find the real origin story behind my city's ascent and Michael Bloomberg's role. My name is at Mike Bloomberg, and on behalf of all New Yorkers, it's a pleasure to welcome Twitter to New York City. Uh, Well, good morning. Uh, We're at the headquarters of BuzzFeed, one of the world's most popular viral news sites. Go to an opening for a tech company here, and chances are Mayor Bloomberg will be there with the scissors cutting the proverbial ribbon. And if anybody doesn't know what a viral news site is, afterwards see me, and I'll be happy to explain it. The relationship between the city's techies and Mike Bloomberg can pretty much be summed up in one word, love fest. And when they think of the tech scene in New York without the mayor, well, many techies feel a little hole in their hearts. This is how Jake Schwartz, CEO of the startup General Assembly, puts it. It's a scary thing to think that that, you know, you had a tech entrepreneur in the mayor's office for for 12 years and all of a sudden we won't. The mayor likes to take credit for transforming New York into the nation's number two city for tech companies. And the founders of these companies are happy to let him. New York has the most tech jobs of any city in the nation. They've grown here by some 30% since 2005. Our strategy makes our city the world's digital capital is a big reason why. But if you think turning tech into an economic engine is all because of Bloomberg, well, not quite. One of the key reasons the tech scene blossomed here is because one really smart guy just didn't want to live in Mountain View, Google's chief engineer, Craig Neville Manning. And they said... Okay, let's do an experiment. You know, as we say a lot at Google, let's have you go out there and uh, if you can find more than 15 really great software engineers that we wouldn't have hired otherwise, you can stay. In 2003, Neville Manning had to beg Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin to let him move back to New York and set up the company's first engineering outpost outside of Silicon Valley. Page and Brin indulged their top engineer's desire to return to the land of decent bagels because they didn't want to lose him or other talented engineers who just couldn't bear to live in California. At that time, memories of the dot-com bubble and bust of the late 90s lingered. Ten years ago, New York was a little bit in the dumps about technology. People really did view it not as a negative thing, but as something that we'd sort of tried in New York City and didn't really pan out. And for the first half of Bloomberg's time in office, that was pretty much the status quo. When computer engineers moved to New York, it was usually because they loved the city, like Neville Manning, or because they'd been offered a job working for big bucks at a financial firm. I wasn't one of those guys. Mike Caprio fell into to the first category. Now he's an engineer at a big tech company and organizes civic hackathons on the side. But when he moved here from Cape Cod in 2007, finding work wasn't easy. I was just a software engineer. I wasn't, you know, a statistician or a big financial guy. I didn't know anything about high volume, rapid transaction processing. I mean, that was always the first thing they asked me on an interview. And so you weren't moving here because it, you were like, oh, New York's turning into a tech center. I got to be part of the action. That wasn't why you came here. Definitely, definitely not. No, I I came here mainly because I I love New York. A year after Mike arrived, Wall Street crashed. Instead of hiring, companies like Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers went bust. I can tell you the reckoning is coming for our city. We are going to have a smaller workforce and fewer services. That's when the Bloomberg administration took lemons and made lemonade, says the Center for Urban Futures, Jonathan Bowles. Lehman Brothers was really seminal in getting the Bloomberg administration 
to really embrace tech. The administration began to shift its economic strategy. It had no choice. I think that at that point it became fundamentally clear that we couldn't rely on Wall Street to get us back. Some of the highly skilled but now unemployed programmers and business people became entrepreneurs themselves. One big opportunity, the 2007 release of the iPhone. The lucrative application market that came out of it was dubbed the app economy. For others, a lower-paying job at one of the city's mid-sized tech companies like ZocDoc, Etsy, or Gilt was better than no job at all. Log in, look around, and discover why Gilt has become my favorite place to shop. And as these companies grew, investors saw potential. New York was the only major tech region in the U.S. to see an increase in venture capital deals between 2007 and 2011. The Bloomberg administration did its own investing, too, putting over $3.5 million into tech incubators. But perhaps most significantly, it held a competition to create a new engineering university. And today, after nearly two months of reviewing the proposals and interviewing the applicants, we are very uh, excited to announce a winner. The winner of the $100 million prize was ultimately Cornell. But smaller grants also boosted programs at the City University of New York, NYU, and Columbia. And according to the city, right now around 1,000 startups are looking to hire for over 3,000 jobs. But for the tech sector to keep growing, everyone agrees the next mayor needs to solve one enormous problem, connectivity. Developer Mike Caprio. We need municipal broadband. Um, I have lived in Williamsburg and Brooklyn for now for six years. I have not been able to get Verizon Fios. I use a MiFi. It's really sad. And I also use my phone because my phone gets ten times better bandwidth than Time Warner Cable. <laughs> it's terrible. It's really. It's almost like we're a backwater when it comes to, to high-speed bandwidth. Google doesn't have that problem. Its massive office sits on top of an underground fiber highway. And after having a look at the ping-pong tables and massage chairs in the Google rec area, I asked Chief Engineer Craig Neville Manning if the mayor ever visits. He did actually drop by for our 10th anniversary and cut a cake for us, which was fantastic. Summing up Bloomberg's legacy, Neville Manning says New York's tech growth was slow and steady until the last several years, when the mayor gave the sector the PR push it needed. A lot of the the blossoming of technology had already happened, but nobody had really packaged it up and said, look, here it is and laid it out. Kind of like wrapping up a gift in beautiful paper and presenting it to the world? I think just explaining what had been happening in New York City uh, was a big part of making that turning point. And I think now it's self-reinforcing. In other words, the techies were glad the mayor dropped by their party. He made it an event, and he also brought a lovely bottle of first-growth Bordeaux. That wraps up our show. A big thank you to the New York Press Club. It was an honor just to be nominated, but to win, thank you. And on a more serious note, I'd really like to thank you, yeah, you, for listening so much and for telling us which stories you like and which ones you aren't so crazy about. We really appreciate all the comments. Please tell your friends about New Tech City. Take a moment to subscribe. It really means a lot to us, much more than awards. I'm at Manoush Z on Twitter. We are at newtechcity.org, or you can email us. We'll go straight in our inboxes at newtechcity at wnyc.org. Thanks again.